Well, excellent. I'm Father James Moore. Uh, people asked about if I'm on social media. I am. It's a weird thing. So my religious name is Father James Junipero. It's for St. Junipero Serra, the Apostle of California. And um, so full disclosure, when I first got on Facebook, I had Father James Moore, and they kicked me off because they don't like titles. So then I put it in Spanish, Padre James Moore, and they kicked me off because they, they know Spanish, but they don't know Latin. So I put it up as Pater uh, James Junipero. So that's how I'm up. And so you can find me on Facebook, find me on Instagram. I'm from California. I'm a California native, born and raised. My family are farmers uh, and school teachers. Uh, and I grew up in Fresno County, California. I went to Santa Clara University for undergrad that's run by the Jesuits, in, uh, and I majored in music. I then went to Notre Dame, and I majored in music there. I did a master's degree in organ performance, so sacred music is my sort of my wheelhouse. And then uh, I, uh, I, had a um, I, I felt this calling to the priesthood when I was an undergrad, and it wouldn't go away. My mom, who's a cradle Catholic, was like, you're not, married, you're not going to the priesthood. You're going to get married to a nice young girl. So I, so I got, I, and I did. I met a great girl at Notre Dame, but I, just the calling would not go away. And so nonetheless, entered the Dominican order in 2000 out in the West. I was ordained in 2008 to the priesthood. Uh, in the Dominicans, I did two more degrees. You, you join the Dominicans, you study for life, right? So I did a, a master's degree in philosophy and then a master's degree in theology, and then I was ordained and went to campus ministry. So for two years, was a campus minister at the University of Arizona, uh, which is in Tucson, Arizona, public school. We had a, our chaplaincy there. And then in 2010, was sent off to do a doctorate. And I did a doctorate again in sacred music, this time in choral conducting at the Catholic University of America in Washington, DC. And there I helped out a lot at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. If you've ever been up to DC, great place, wonderful music program. Uh, I studied under Dr. Leo Nestor there and came back thoroughly thinking I was gonna be a professor for the rest of my life, which I was really happy about. And after one year of teaching, I got a tenure track job and my provincial, my boss came to me and said, actually, no, Father, we're putting you in administration. So I'm vicar provincial for the Dominicans on the West Coast. And uh, my main job is fundraising. So thanks be to God, we have tons of young seminarians right now coming in, in the most secular parts of the country too. So in, on the west coast of California, we have, our little province out there is about 100 priests, and we have 36 men in formation. Our province here in the east and the northeast is um, about 300 priests, and they have 75 men in formation. So the order is exploding right now in the most unchurched parts. In the south here, it's not really growing, and in the midwest, not really growing as much. But I don't know, so the Holy Spirit's doing something, needing us to preach. The Dominicans are an order that's known especially for its engagement of faith and reason, and especially also for its study. Uh, in fact, most religious orders all have um, sort of the big three things that we sort of focus on, right? So we all, all religious orders have community with each other. All religious orders have some sort of apostolate. This is their outreach, right? What you do, like you teach or you serve the poor, whatever. And all religious orders, of course, have some sort of prayer together. So some sort of communal prayer. But the Dominicans, we add actually one more thing, and that's this notion of study. And it makes us unique. And it's actually part of our spirituality. It's part of our life. So much so that when you're hearing a confession of another Dominican, often they will confess, I'm not studying enough. Though you actually will hear that. You actually hear, I didn't engage in study this week. And so it's part of the confession that they bring. Um, so full disclosure, I, I know that Father Ian billed this as a talk of faith and science. He texted me last week and said this. And I said, wait a minute, what? I said, I, I, I know 
very little about science. We have many, many Dominicans who know tons about science. I said, my area is music, and so usually my, my talks are on uh, evangelization and beauty. Uh, however, I nonetheless will endeavor, it's not gonna be faith in science as much as it's gonna be more faith in reason. So, and it's gonna be focusing on especially what St. Thomas Aquinas can teach us. Now, just for my own sake, how long did Father Ian build this talk to go, or how long were we all expecting this talk to go? What was the expectation? Dominicans can talk all night, so that's great. Okay, no, uh, it's like St. Paul. I'll, I'll preach till midnight and somebody will fall out the window and die and then have to do, resurrect them. No, won't do that. So can we say then, uh, just for uh, time's sake, that maybe we'll go till about 6.20? Is that good for everybody? And then we have food afterwards for people to eat. All right. Um, so I'm going to talk to you about faith and reason and why these are so necessary. And I want to offer two examples at the beginning here about why these things are important. About 10 years ago, when I was a brand new priest, we don't, do we have anybody in here with LDS background, Mormon background? Okay, so Mormons are a big thing in the West. And um, in fact, very interestingly, at Santa Clara when I was an undergrad, uh, actually one of the few girls I could find who shared my moral outlook, even though it was a Catholic school, was an El Mormon girl. So it was actually, she, she was one of the girls I dated. So we're still good buddies. Um, but uh, about 10 years ago when I was a priest, baby priest, young dad, I was at the University of Arizona and uh, Mormons often will do this thing where they call it proselyte dating. That's the official name. The unofficial term is flirt to convert. Uh, and so uh, one of our young guys was talking to a Mormon girl and he came to me with a bunch of questions and about like Mormonism versus Catholicism. And one of the big topics there for Mormonism is they, they believe in something called the great apostasy. You ever heard of this? So the great apostasy is that basically Jesus Christ founded the Mormon church when he came here to earth. And then when all the apostles died, it's somehow the church got corrupted. There was all like this wave of apostasy. They all, apostasy means leaving, right? To leave, to, to, to detach yourself. And so everybody apostatized and the church fell into disarray until Joseph Smith discovered tablets in upstate New York in the, 18, uh, in the 19th century. So if this is true, then you have to actually look at the record and say, okay, where did that actually happen, right? And here's the thing, we can go back into the historical record for the great apostasy, right? So the girl wanted to talk to me. I thought, this is kind of weird, because usually Mormons won't allow their people to talk to priests, but I said, okay, fine. And I went to talk to her, and she said, we we're talking about this great apostasy. And she said, yes, when all the apostles died, then all of a sudden the church flipped. I said, okay, um, what about Timothy and Titus? Do you know about them? And she said, yeah, they're in the Bible. I said, okay, well, were they included in the great apostasy? Because they were alive, we think, after the last apostles died, probably. She was like, oh, well, no, maybe it stayed around for them. Okay, I said, have you ever heard of a guy named Polycarp? I was like, many fish. St. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna, which is now in Turkey. St. Polycarp studied under St. John the Apostle. We have his writings, and guess what? There's continuity between St. John and St. Polycarp. So it didn't happen there. Do you know about Clement of Rome? one of the first popes after St. Peter. Yeah, we've got his writings too. There's continuity there. Do you know of Ignatius of uh, Antiochia? We've got his writings, there's continuity. When did this great apostasy happen? So if you look at the whole historical record, it's not there. And I said, so it just doesn't make any sense because I mean, reasonably, it's hard to make that argument because this doesn't exist. And she said, oh, that's where you're wrong. She said, it's best if faith and reason are completely divorced because then you can have real faith. You can have real faith. And I thought, that's really bad. If you divorce faith and reason that completely, it could lead to 
um, what we call in the philosophical tradition voluntarism, where just the will of God can willy-nilly change and can change something else. And it can also give rise to occultism, right? If you totally divorce everything from reason, then you say, because our God, we believe, created the earth in his image, right? And man and woman in his image and created us rational beings in his image, right? So therefore, reason is a good thing which we can put to use. Now, second story, just a few days ago, I was on the plane actually to come out here. And when I was on the plane, I was sitting next to two Chinese individuals uh, and they, um, they, the Chinese man especially grew up in communist China. And so he wanted to talk about, he is a non-believer, but talking to a believer and how these were important. And he began to talk about that he could see, because he worked in the world of data. And he said, but I do see something. He said, everybody seems to have some sort of destiny. It's like written into their lives. Everybody has like a, like a place that they're, that they're going. I said, like a calling? Yeah, well, like a calling. I said, well, they have a calling. Somebody has to call. So I guess who's said, Well, no, no, no. I mean, but, but okay, maybe it's just it's fate. It's written into fate. Okay, does fate call? Then who, what, what is that? What's behind all that? And so you could see in this guy's sort of struggle with things that he realized there was something that needed to be higher. Now, for him, it was some sort of principle of fate, right? But the problem is that principle of fate seemed to be very, very personal, was calling people in a personal way. And he could actually say this. So he tried to offer it like with natural selection. He said, well, you're just selected this way by Darwinism. I said, well, that's very interesting. So we each evolve individually, but that doesn't, and the human species evolves over a long period of time. That doesn't make a ton of sense. Nonetheless, he was still searching. And he could get to that idea that there had to be something out there, but that's as far as he could go. He needed grace. Now, Tertullian, one of the fathers of the church. Now, I've heard, I was meeting with uh, Luisa today, uh, one of your uh, grads from the, Bapt uh, from the Divinity School here, and she said that you all, as part of your Divinity School here, often read some of the fathers of the church. And so I thought that was awesome. So um, Tertullian was one of the fathers of the church, one of those early Christian writers sort of trying to um, understand how all this stuff fit together. And he famously had a line that said, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? What hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? What does that make sense to you? What do you, what do you think that means? If I said, what hath Athens to do with Jerusalem? Undergrads, what do you think that means? What about Jerusalem? Jerusalem's the city of what? Jesus, right? Jesus, right, that's where he was crucified and everything, that's the city of our faith. What about Athens? Who lived in Athens in the ancient times? The Greeks. Philosophers, right, so. That's right, so here you have Athens representing philosophy and Jerusalem representing faith, right? So what do these two things have to do with each other? And I think that's always been a struggle in a lot of Christianity. Now, in the Acts of the Apostles, hopefully you all are reading the scriptures, right? Uh, maybe people doing Bible in the Year, Father Mike Schmitz, anybody doing this? Okay, so we got this a Catholic priest who's doing this wonderful Bible in the Year podcast that's taking the Catholic world by storm, and I think other people too, really good. So. In the Bible, in the Acts of the Apostles, St. Paul does something really interesting in one of his missionary journeys. He goes to Athens, and he goes to Athens, and he goes to a place up near the Acropolis that's called the Areopagus. And you can still, if you go to Athens, you can see this today. There's a picture of me when I went on pilgrimage to Athens, standing on top of the Areopagus. That is where the philosophers met. And St. Paul, in the Acts of the Apostles, goes there, and he preaches. And he says, you Athenians are very pious. I even see that there's this altar that you have here to an unknown god. The philosophers are interested. And he said, this is the one god. He said, there's a highest god in whom we live and move and have our being. And they all thought, oh, that's really great. That's really wonderful. And then he went on to say something that, where he jumped the shark. He went on and he said, this is 
exemplified and fulfilled in this person, Jesus Christ, who died and rose from the dead. And they're like, okay, <laughs> that's too much, right? These guys could get it up to then. Yeah, it's reasonable that we can have a God in whom we live and move and have our being. But this guy who all of a sudden came to earth and he gets put to death and he rises from the dead, that's too much from us. But St. Paul did get some converts. Amongst them, St. Denis or St. Dionysius, who was very, very important um, in sort of a, a received tradition in, in philosophy and theology. At least that name is. We can debate on whether or not he was actually the, the guy who is later on. Anyway, point being, you've got these two ways of knowing about God. First, from reason, and the second, from philosophy, from theology, from above. So, for instance, this notion of wonder. The human person is different than a doggy, right? When a doggy gets all of his or her needs met, what do they do? If a dog gets fed, has a warm spot, what do they do? They go to sleep, right, exactly. What does a human being do? We've got our needs met, right? I got my food, I got my water, I got my, okay, I'm good, I got some free time. We start to wonder, right? We start to wonder. We start to look up at the stars and reflect back what created all this. Why is there something instead of nothing? We start to ask questions because we're rational beings. And this is what the ancient philosophers did. This is what philosophers do today. They start to wonder and they start to go out. Every human person has this written in their hearts because we're rational beings. There's a desire to know and to understand, right? And to understand the universe and the world beyond the universe. Now, guys like Aristotle and Plato, ancient Greek philosophers, do you all study this in undergrads here? In your Western, some a little bit, okay, kind of go at it. Okay. Uh, at Santa Clara, we still had, when I was an undergrad, we still had this as part of the curriculum, but Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, right? We all heard these names, right? And so these guys really sought to see this, and they had good ideas, especially that there was something that had to be high and above everything else. In Latin, we call this the sumum bonum, the highest good, right? And so Aristotle and Plato could see there has to be something higher. They still kind of believed in all those little Greek gods running around and doing things, but they had believed there had to be something higher. But that was about as far as they could go, and it was very, very murky when they got there. They looked up and they go, okay, that sense of wonder, there has to be some sort of unifying principle, a first cause. Do you know what that means when I say a cause? Like, what is the cause of me knocking this over? It's my arm moving, right? But what is the first cause? What's the first push, right? What's the thing that get everything going? Um, what is the first cause of every motion that happens? things like this, and they asked, and they asked, why? Also, these, uh, these apostles, these philosophers talked about things called virtues. Do you want to talk about virtues here? School. Virtues are habits of the mind, right? We, in Latin, we say habitus mentis. Uh, virtues of the mind, where uh, habits of the mind where we intentionally cultivate good actions, right? So, for instance, I want to be uh, somebody who is courageous, right? So, therefore, I intentionally practice being courageous. As a priest, sometimes that's interesting. One time I remember <laughs> having to stand up for an undergrad against a stalker. I was really scared. <laughs> he confronted me in the parking lot. I had one phone on the, uh, hand on the phone to call the cops and the other hand on my rosary. Sorry, blessed mother, please let me not cry. Please let me be, <laughs> please let me be brave, right? So, but those, those things that we do over and over, if you do virtuous actions over and over, you develop that virtue, right? So I could develop courageous by standing up against the creepy guy in the parking lot. I could develop the virtue of temperance Say that I love, I love to eat, oh my gosh. Lent is a good time to always do this, right? So scale back from all the foods that I love, especially cookies, right? Or especially alcohol, right? I love to, um, is, is this a dry campus? Yeah. Oh, it is, okay, okay. Coming from Notre Dame, <laughs> Catholic campuses are not dry. But anyway, and, and, and a priest, right? I, I, I love to have, when we celebrate, to have a, a nice drink. Well, temperance is a good time. So during 
at Lent, I back off from that, right? Um, inspired by my archbishop, especially in San Francisco, Archbishop Corleone. And these virtues, especially the virtues that they could figure out and they could distill them down to four, prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Now notice what I've not brought in here too much, God. Right? I'm talking about virtues, but these are things we can kind of reason on our own. Right? We can come to these conclusions on our own if we needed to. Right? So, but there's a problem. If we just use, and I'm going to circle back to this later on, if we just use human reason alone, we can come to some odd endings sometimes. Right? We can come to some odd endings sometimes if we just use human reason alone. For instance, Aristotle, he had a very controversial thing that he believed in. He believed that there were some people who were born natural slaves. Now, we would think this is repugnant, right? However, this is a conclusion he came to using human reason. Using human reason, you can often get into sometimes strange dead-end things, right? Even things that are kind of unvirtuous and we would say bad. But if using human reason alone, if I'm just making an argument, you can see that how you could get there. But the problem is for this kind of knowing is that you could get into some really weird situations. Um, you know, uh, one of the things, this is kind of a drastic example, here in the New World, um, uh, the Aztec people were notorious uh, for human sacrifice, right? And so, again, a tribe that was seeking to, you know, try to try to do what they thought was good, but then somehow they got into this notion that that human sacrifice is a good thing. And we can say this even without being Christians. We can say that's something that's bad. All right, that's with regard to reason. Now let's talk about the other kind of knowing, revelation. Revelation is when God reveals himself to us. And so this can happen in many other ways. So these two types of knowing, but this is kind of the top down where the other one's bottom up, right? So who did God first reveal himself to? Well, creation story, right? Back in the old day, very old days, but in more modern biblical stuff to Abraham, right? To Abraham, 4,000 years ago, he calls Abraham out of Ur the Chaldees, modern day Iraq, and says, come to this new land and follow me. And by the way, you're gonna have one God. You're gonna have a God, you're gonna only worship one God. Uh, a God that you give honor to, one God alone. And he was the notion of a chosen people, the people that God revealed himself to. And so he was the one God. He did not have a human form. He was also a good God. He did not demand abominable things. The nations that the Israelites bumped into demanded things like child sacrifice, the God Molech, and things like this. Now to do this, he uh, helped people out, the people, ancient people of Israel, with giving them the law. Right? So, wandering around in Egypt, right? You've all seen the movie Prince of Egypt, right? We know about this. Going through the Red Sea and then wandering around in the desert. For how long? 40 years, right? By the way, the number 40. A friend of mine once, she's a really, really good hearted evangelical. I don't think she's a Baptist. A really good hearted evangelical. I was posting about Lent once and she comes in and starts attacking me. Where is Lent in the Bible? And I said, Well, first of all, why does it have to be in the Bible? But number two, Lent's all over the Bible because, what, 40? The Latin word for it is quadragesima. The Spanish word, she was Mexican, quaresma, 40. And so I said, 40 is everywhere in the Bible, right? And so 40 years, and of course, Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Okay. In those 40 years in the wilderness, the Israelites wandering around, sort of discerning God's will for them, God speaking to them in many ways, and giving them the law. So the law is often thought about as all those dietary laws, but in the middle of the law, the central part of the law, the part that we still think about today, especially when we go to confession, are the what? The big part of the central part of the law. We often put them in two tablets. Ten Commandments, very good, yes, exactly, the Ten Commandments. Now, 
These Ten Commandments are very, very interesting. It's God revealing his law to the people, but are these Ten Commandments only meant for Jewish people? Are they only meant for Christian people? They're very interesting, right? They don't talk about like you have to believe in three persons. You don't have to believe in what they say is, you know, worship one God. That's the Aristotle could probably maybe even get behind that, right? They talk about honoring father and the mother, not killing, not committing adultery, things like this, not lying, you know, not being envious. Those things can be applied to everybody, right? In a certain sense, those, those Ten Commandments. Now, but it's God revealing himself to help people get a sharper mind on what they should be doing anyway. Does that make sense? So guys like Aristotle and Plato going from ground up, but the people of God having this revealing to them, especially through the Ten Commandments and the law from the top down. Does that make sense? on how they could live good life. So same kind of thing, especially going after the virtues from bottom up, and then here you have this top down. Again, on the same kinds of things, like the same kind of virtues that the Greeks would be doing, but now specified through God's action. All right, and then of course we believe as Catholic Christians and all Christians that the fullness of revelation came what? Through Jesus Christ, right? That this is God's revealing himself to us. This is something we can only know by faith alone right? Jesus Christ, true God and true man, we can only know that by faith. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, we can know that by faith, and also because we have witnesses, right? They gave testimony to the fact that this actually occurred, right? And this is why St. Paul had to bring that up, even though it was kind of an insane teaching, right? Either it's insane or it's true, right? And so this very, very interesting um, idea of Christians coming out, and then, of course, St. Paul getting this further sort of push that this was to go to all peoples, Right? And already seeing it in Jesus Christ that this preaching and this revelation should be for all peoples, not just the ancient people of God, not just the chosen people, but now grafted onto the chosen people would be all of us, right? the Gentiles. So St. Paul takes his preaching out and he runs into Greek philosophy at the Areopagus. And at that point, people continue to struggle. How do we fit these two things together? How do we fit the bottom up from the top down? How do those two things fit together? That's the background that's before, and I'm going to go real fast into St. Thomas Aquinas here for the rest of this talk. But, is there any questions? Is it all clear as mud? No, is it too crazy? Do you understand everything I said? Clarifying questions? Okay, good. All right. Excellent. So faith and reason coming together. So St. Paul, right, very, very beginning of the church's history, we skip ahead, we see people like St. Augustine writing on this, we see people like St. Ambrose, we see people in the East, we see St. Basil the Great, we see St. Theodore the Studite, we see all these people sort of mixing philosophy and theology together and sort of seeing how they all work together. St. Augustine in particular is really good with this, and he especially uses a lot of the philosophy of Plato, and Plato as sort of um, uh, titrated and passed down, trickled down through other philosophers as well. So what happens? The Dominican, orders are, the Dominican order is founded in 1216. Okay, so much after St. Augustine dies, what, in, the, in 410 or something like that, I think, is when he died. So from 410 to 1216, we have kind of the same thing going on. In 1216, the Dominican order is founded. We are the order of preachers. And so we're sent out to convert the world. We're sent out to set the world on fire for Jesus Christ. And anybody in here study history? Okay, okay, so you said history, excellent, okay. But for anybody who might, this open question. Uh, starting in the year six, in the mid 600s, what came out of Arabia and swept across Northern Africa and swept across a lot of, even up to the gates of Eastern Europe? The what? The caliphate, which is what? 
Muslim Empire, right. So you have the Muslim Empire go across. And in the meantime, right, between the year 410 and 1216, what happens? The Roman Empire collapses, right, especially in the West. The Roman Empire collapses in the West. It kind of continues on in the East through the Byzantine Empire, but there's a lot of mixing. You have this Muslim army that goes across North Africa. And then where does it go? Not just across North Africa. It crosses the Straits of Gibraltar and goes into Spain, right, exactly, it goes into Spain. And it conquers up to the very, like, to the Pyrenees, to the very northern part of Spain. Okay, so this is the Dominicans are founded around this time when Christian armies are beginning to push back the Muslims from the north of Spain. And the Dominicans want to do what? Preach to the Muslims, right? We're, we're a very zealous group, so we want to preach to the Muslims. So what do we need to do to preach to the Muslims? What do we need to learn? Arabic, Arabic. very good, excellent. Okay, Arabic. Arabic, Arabic. Okay, so there's an issue. Between this year, 410, and 1216, a lot of things are lost in the West. A lot of things are lost, including especially the writings of Aristotle. We knew that Aristotle existed. We knew that he'd written a bunch of books because we had lists of his works. But remember, this is before the printing press. Things got lost. All the copies of Aristotle in the West were lost. We knew that these works existed, but we never actually knew what they contained, with the exception of the logic, one text that we had. So Aristotle was kind of off. This is what, uh, he wasn't used. St. Augustine used Plato, others used Plato, but you didn't really have Arist Aristotelian philosophy to sort of knock off on, uh, to sort of use to talk about things. What happens? The Dominicans are founded in 1216, and we promptly found a language school in Toledo, Spain. Toledo, Spain is an area that was recently reconquered from the Muslims. And we do that so we can learn Arabic, so we can preach to the Muslims. We have a bunch of guys, we've got a bunch of smart guys, they all learn Arabic, what do they do? They go to the Arabs, start preaching, and they encounter Arabic literature. Guess what they find in the Arabic literature? Aristotle. His works were preserved in Arabic, whereas they'd been lost in the Greek, they'd been lost in the Latin. His works were preserved in Arabic, because there were Muslim philosophers who used Aristotle. So all of a sudden, all those works of Aristotle we thought were lost in the late, in the mid-1200s get translated from Arabic into Latin by the Dominicans. And all of a sudden, the Dominicans realize, oh, this is really cool philosophy. We can use this philosophy because it, like I said, it docks on. Aristotle could see that highest good. He believed in something called a metaphysical philosophy, that there are things that we can know that are tangible, right? Earth, sky, uh, things we can make. But there are also things that are intangible, like intellect. The intellect is partially immaterial. It knows because of material things, but it can abstract, right? Instance, I'll give you this. Mathematics, uh, one apple plus one apple is two apples, right? But we also know, taking away from matter, one plus one still equals two. I can know that even without matter, but matter is what it begins with. And then Aristotle says we can even abstract even more and know things by pure reason that are even immaterial. So this is why Dominicans thought, ah, this is a really great way to speak about things. So, uh, and by the way, John Paul II has said, we can still do this. So the medieval philosophers under St. Thomas Aquinas took Aristotle, especially from his teacher, St. Albert the Great, another great Dominican, took Aristotle and they started making a synthesis of philosophy and theology, of faith and reason, putting this stuff together. And St. Thomas Aquinas really gave this legs and he's especially known in something that's called the Summa Theologica. This is the main work of St. Thomas Aquinas. 
And it is sort of a summary of all of theology using philosophy, especially Aristotelian philosophy, and it is the primary textbook that we Dominicans still use today when we study faith. We often update it, we, we see how it docks on with modern issues, but when we take something like the Trinity, like my course in Trinity, we start with looking at the scriptures. Where is the Trinity prefigured? Then we go to St. Augustine, some of the fathers of the church, then we stop and we spend a couple of weeks with St. Thomas in the Summa Theologica, what he says about the Trinity, and then we go to modern issues. So he still holds a central place for us in this Summa Theologica, which putting together those works of Aristotle and the works of faith together. Okay, any questions about that? It's another docking on point. And then we're gonna go into St. Thomas Aquinas more thoroughly. So no questions at all, is this just clear as matter? Okay, yes. How, so how much of the uh, Aristotle writings were the heretically saved? A lot. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not an Aristotelian scholar, uh, and so I don't know if, if there were other works that were lost, probably there were. But nonetheless, the major works that St. Thomas used, especially were the metaphysics and the ethics. The metaphysics, especially the ones that you can actually understand reasonable things that are not materially based. And then the ethics, which is where St. Thomas Aquinas developed his virtue theory. And he used that to dock on and to speak about virtue in a Christian way. So St. Thomas Aquinas then develops this thing called the Summa. Any other questions about this before we go on into the Summa, what the Summa is? Okay. Now this is where we're gonna get to the heart of the talk because we're gonna go through a question in the Summa. So the Summa is put together in many, many articles, and it starts up here with God, and it goes this way, God revealing himself to us. We're down here, man. And then man returning to God. This movement is called, in classical theology, exitus and reditus. So exit and return. Right? Okay, and so the whole plan of the Summa is like this. It's circular. It starts up here with God after one article. After one article. The first article is not about that. And then, then it goes into God. And then it goes down this way. So it starts off with the existence and nature of God. Right? We just talked about that, right? The existence that God actually exists. And this is where St. Thomas Aquinas' famous five proofs for the existence of God. I don't have them memorized. Please don't ask me to do that. I have to look them up because we use a lot of them but we don't use them all, all the time. Uh, then he talks about the existence and nature uh, after that, the creation of the world, and he talks about angels. Interesting, angels. They're beings that have no material being, but they are real, right? So these are completely abstracted from, uh, from, uh, from matter. And then he starts to talk about man, okay? That's the end of the first part. So the end of the first part coming down to about here. Then St. Thomas talks in the second part, begins uh, into two subparts. The first part of the second part, which we call the Prima Secunda, is divided into uh, general principles of morality. So general morality here and law. Then Secunda Secunde, which a lot of people study because this is particular morality, morality of the virtues. This is where he goes through all of the virtues we need. And then here at the end, Jesus Christ going back, right? So. The fullness of God. So God revealing himself to us, and then man down here trying to figure out what he's doing. And then here, Jesus. And then the return to God, where Jesus, and this is where St. Thomas has his treatise on things like the sacraments, right? Where he goes through and talks about how those sacraments help bring us back to God. So this whole formula, exitus reditus, is how the whole summa is designed. Any questions on this? Yes. 
Okay, so that's, yes, that's general morality, writing the tablet on our hearts, right? So not up here, but this is when he's starting to reveal himself to us. But it's also docking on down here with all the, what the Greeks were talking about, right? With those virtues. Because those virtues are also written on our hearts. So this is where those two things come together. We call this the natural law, by the way. Anybody ever heard that title? Maybe we should talk about that for a second before we get into this first article of the Summa. Okay, natural law. versus divine law. Okay, this is actually really important, especially for the way that the church actually today encourages people in their own moral lives and also supports what we should pass laws on as a country versus what we should not pass laws on. So natural law are those things which we can know by reason alone. And these are the things down here that are known by God, known by grace alone. The principal laws, the natural law, would be what the ones in the Bible anyway are the Ten Commandments. And also the virtues, the, what we call the moral virtues. So this is what you were talking about right here. Those are the Ten Commandments and the moral virtues going together under the natural law. The divine law, what is this? Known by grace alone. These are things that we can only know by revelation. These are often what we call the Beatitudes, right? This is, these are the, what we call the precepts of the divine law, right? It's what God's teaching us through the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Or the Sermon on the Plain. And also all the teachings of the New Testament, right? and even some of the old stuff too. All right, so, does that make sense? So these two things, natural law versus divine law. This is why the church would say, we should not pass laws in our country that say, you have to believe in one God in three persons, in belief in the Trinity, right? That's something that divine law can only know. That's something that we can only know by grace alone. We should not pass a law in the House of Representatives that requires us to believe in that. However, thou shalt not kill. That's something we can know by, by natural law as well, right? We can know that because it's in our hearts, written to us by guess who, the creator, God. But again, just talking about God in a natural way, not talking about God in a theological way, not talking about him in the revealed way, right? So natural law, known by reason alone. So that's why we'd say, like, for instance, somewhat controversial now, but the, why the church encourages people to uh, fight against abortion, because we would say that that is against the natural and the divine law, not just the divine law. Uh, this is why the church encourages marriage between one man and one woman, because we would make an argument that it would be under natural law that you could say that rather than both natural and divine law. Now, an interesting thing, though, that we forget about, grace helps us actually live that natural law, too. And we forget about this. This is Dominican conversation. We'll be around the table, and we were talking about this when the whole gay marriage thing came up. We were like, okay, how do we talk about this? How do we bring this to our congregations? How do we speak about this? How do we speak about abortion? And we make our usual arguments from, from natural law. But one of our really good philosopher priests, so this is a guy who works in the area of the natural law, he said, we forget that we have the grace of God and our faith to illuminate the natural law. So it's easier for us as people of faith, hopefully, to see the natural law and to actually follow the natural law. Does this make any sense? So this is throwing a lot of stuff at you. This is, this is kind of, but this is, this is 
essential to understanding this. Okay. Now I'm going to conclude our talk today with going through just the first article of the Summa. And I'm going to talk about how St. Thomas uses and argues things in the Summa. Natural law and divine law, important concepts. Okay, here we go. So what St. Thomas does in every article in the Summa is he'll ask a question. So it starts with a question. The church is always open to real dialogue, to rational dialogue. And so he'll say this. This is the first question he asks. Whether besides philosophy, any further doctrine is required? Do we need something other than philosophy? I mean, Aristotle got it, right? He figured out God. And then what he'll do is he'll ask the question, and then he'll line out objections. And in this one, I think he gives two objections. He can give up to like six objections. I've seen him. So he'll give first objection, second objection. Then he'll say that, but on the other hand, we said, on the contrary. Or as we say in Latin, said contra. And then he gives here, on the, for the said contra, he gives an example either from philosophy or theology. Or so either from the Bible or from one of the great fathers of the church or from like Aristotle. This is an example from authority. So you first do this example from authority, saying like, Scripture says this, or St. Augustine says this, or Aristotle says that, right? And we do this a lot, where we argue from authority. But then he goes on, respondeo, I answer that. And this is often the meat of the article. This is when, when, when you're in seminary and you're trying to like get to the heart of the matter and, like, and study for a test really fast. You go to these sections. You're just like, okay, objections are nice. Yeah, the, the authority's great. Okay, what does he actually say? Said contra. That's the meat of the thing, right? I answer that. And this is his respondeo. Okay? This is sort of the, the meat of the thing. And then he says... He gives replies to each of the objections. Reply to, to objection one and reply to objection two. Okay? So see, this is how every article in the Summa is sort of laid out, right? So it's a very, very good rational way to argue through. Now, like I said, everything from St. Thomas started this exitus reditus formula, right? Starting with God moving it, except for the first article, where he says, is this project even necessary? And this is what I want to sort of end today, where we talk about this. Um, okay, computer. St. Thomas Aquinas starts out. Whether besides philosophy, any further doctrine is needed. So his first objection, it seems that besides philosophical science, we have no need of any further knowledge for man should not seek to know what is above reason. Seek not the things that are above thee. Right? That's from the Bible. Uh, Sirach. But whatever is not above reason is very truly uh, treated of philosophical science. Therefore, any other knowledge besides philosophical science is superfluous. In other words, we shouldn't go looking further. Right? Then he says, further, knowledge can only be, this is objection two, can only be concerned with being, for nothing can be known that, from what is true. And all that is true. But everything that is, is treated of in philosophical science, even God himself. So what does philosophy do? It looks at being. It looks at all of wisdom. It looks at all of science, right? And he says, so therefore, there's no need for further knowledge. 
But then he says, on the contrary, and then he quotes the Bible, all science inspired by God is profitable to teach, to reprove, to correct, to instruct in justice. Now, Scripture is inspired of God and is not part of philosophical science, which has been built up by human reason. Therefore, it is useful. Besides philosophical science, there should be a knowledge other than God, which uh, other, other than philosophy, which is inspired of God. So he says, wait, we got this whole thing of Scripture, right? We got this whole thing of Scripture, God revealing himself to us. And that's not philosophy. That's God doing the revealing. Therefore, we can study it. Okay, that's his contrary. Then, here's the meat of the question. I answer that. This is his respondeo. It's necessary for man's salvation that there should be a knowledge revealed by God besides philosophical science. We can't know that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can't know that it's by the cross that we are saved. We can't know that it's from the blood and water that poured out from the side of Christ that are the fountain of all graces, including all the sacraments. Everything stands upon that cross. That is only something we can know by faith alone, which is why we need theology. It says it's necessary for man's salvation. There is no salvation outside of that cross, right? Firstly, indeed, because man is directed to God as an end that surpasses the grasp of his reason, right? So we're directed to God, but that reason starts to peter out, right? When we get towards God, so if we think about this, right? So here's human reason. And here's God over here. And it can start off, but it gets dim, right? It gets dim as we go towards God. There's very little we can know about God except maybe he does exist. Whereas, if you use Revelation, all of a sudden you can see all of God, right? So this is where St. Thomas brings this up. He says, the truth about God, such as reason, could discover, this is interesting, could only be known by a few, and that after a long time with the admixture of many errors. That's exactly what happened to Aristotle, right? He knew only after a long time of study, he knew only after contemplating this stuff for years and years, wrestling it, that there does exist this one God, but he knew it with a bunch of errors. He still kind of believed in all those little Greek divinities. He thought about that there was a thing called natural slavery. He, so he got it, sort of, dimly, with a lot of problems. As so this is why St. Thomas Aquinas says, whereas man's salvation, which is in God, depends on the knowledge of this truth. Therefore, in order that the salvation of men might be brought about more fitly and more surely, it was necessary that it should be taught divine truths by divine revelation, and necessary that besides philosophical science built up by reason, there should be sacred science learned through revelation. So there's two great arguments. Number one, you can't really get here except with a lot of study and you're going to probably make tons of mistakes. And number two, you can't be saved by that knowledge. You just might know, okay, that God exists, but there's no salvation there. We, well, there might be, right? There, there might be, but that's, that's God working in an extraordinary manner. Any questions? That's the meat of my talk. We've got five minutes left for questions. And it could be questions about this or it could be questions about anything, including the Dominican order. There's a lot of information, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah, but can you get the general thing about, uh, that's the one thing I want to really impress upon people, is that for human reason alone, we can get to God, sort of, as this kind of hazy thing out there. In fact, in our great Dominican church in New York City, Aristotle is in the stained glass windows, but he doesn't have a halo, right? So Aristotle's in the stained glass windows because he got close. We're not saying that he's in hell. We're not saying that. I want to emphasize that. I actually believe that Aristotle's probably in heaven by all the things he did. But nonetheless, he could get close, but it was just very dim. And it couldn't have the whole things about Jesus Christ. That's the main thing I want you to take away from this whole. And that's the reason why we need these two things to go together. On the flip side, if we don't have reason, 
you get caught in the same trap that my Mormon friend got caught in, right? Where you can just, yo, oh, sure, we'll believe whatever. And how do we know that that's true, right? I mean, so here's the thing. We can't, we can't prove that Jesus Christ is God and man without revelation, but we can speak about him in a reasonable manner and in a way that doesn't contradict reason, and that's important. Unless it's something like rising from the dead. And that is unreasonable. That's, that's not natural. That's supernatural. That has to be completely supernatural. Like the vocation of the priesthood, by the way. One of my friends, I remember my third grade teacher, she saw me when I was, when I was a seminarian. She said, and she's not a, I don't think she's even a believer of anything. She said, what a waste. She said, it's just so unnatural what you're doing. And I thought, at first I was offended, but then I said, you're right. Actually, it's not natural. It's supernatural. It only can come from a calling from God. Okay, any other questions? Questions about the Dominicans, too. Yes? Yeah, so like I passed over our founder, didn't I? Um, so one of the interesting things, distinctions, you all have heard of Franciscans? Who is the founder? St. Francis, right? The guitar playing hippie, right? No, <laughs> he was not. Actually, if you, if you read Father, one of our priests actually wrote a definitive bibliography, a biography of St. Francis. He was not a guitar playing hippie, much like and, and, uh, even though Brother, Son, Sister Moon say that. The Franciscans are really devoted to their founder. In fact, their question is often, what would Francis do? No Dominican would ever ask that question. What would Dominic do? We would never ask that question about our founder. Our founder had a kind of a crazy life. He was given special graces. He didn't seem to need to sleep. He stayed up most of the night, almost every night. He would sleep maybe for an hour or two here and there. He just didn't. And so what he did, St. Dominic was, he was, he was born in Spain and he uh, was already ordained a priest there in Spain and was living a priestly life and a good life in an Augustinian monastery in Spain uh, that followed the rule of St. Augustine. And he was asked to accompany his bishop to Denmark to arrange a marriage between the princess of Denmark and I think the king of Spain, the prince of Spain. And when he went through southern France, he encountered a heresy called um, Manichaeism. It's a form of Manichaeism. It's this dualism. Uh, it's called Albigensianism. And he encountered this heresy. And the Albigensians were winning the hearts and the minds of the people. And it seemed like the local priests had no way to stop them, to stop this heresy. And so um, St. Dominic said, we need an order to, found, to fight this. And we need an order that is based, that studies, so we can actually preach well and lives well. So we're gonna have a monastic order that lives authentically, but also can preach, and can preach in a way that's compelling for these heretics to come back to the faith. So this, it founded originally to combat that notion of Albigensianism, but then spread very quickly. St. Dominic sent his brothers to the universities of Europe, which were a new thing. He sent us to Bologna, he sent us to the University of Paris, he sent us to Oxford, he sent us to Coimbra in Portugal, he sent us to the university centers really early. And so this center of learning and it exploded throughout Europe, this whole new way of life. So it's a monastic way of life that includes study, but preaching for the salvation of souls, and especially to explain doctrine. There's a joke, uh, sorry to my, my uh, brothers and sisters, uh, Protestant brothers and sisters, uh, an old, it's kind of a scandalous joke. An atheist approached a Jesuit and Dominican and said, what's the difference between the Jesuits and the Dominicans? Do you know this, this, this story? And the Dominicans said, well, we were founded to combat Albigensianism. And the Jesuits said, we were founded to combat Protestantism. And the atheist said, well, you guys sound like you're exactly the same. And the Dominicans said, uh-uh. Have you ever met an Albigensian? In other words, we, we did the job, right? We, we did our job. The Jesuits, not so much. Anyway, sorry, bad joke. Any other questions? Yes? Um, how can that happen? 
have the faith of a child, which is quoting the Bible, and yes. also come to know God in a very theological and intellectual manner without having the two kind of get in each other's way? So that's a really good question. Um, one of the greatest Catholic theologians of the 20th century, Hans Urs von Balthasar, he said, we should do theology, but always do theology on our knees, to always humble ourselves. One more thing about St. Thomas that answered this question. St. Thomas was writing the Summa. Remember I was talking about it? He got to the third part over here. He was writing about the sacraments, and he stopped. And he stopped writing. Period. Stop. And then he died six months later. What happened was on the Feast of St. Nicholas, um, he was celebrating Mass, so in, in December, so December 6th. And he got done, and something happened. We're not exactly sure. There was some sort of vision, and he went. St. Thomas was not known for visions. He had one when he was young about chastity, which is very important. But then he had this other one late, late in life. And the Lord spoke to him and said, Thomas, you've written well about me. What do you desire? And his famous response, you see this in a lot of Dominican writings, non nisite domine, nothing except you, O Lord. And he was granted a vision. And we don't know, if it, we think it was a vision of heaven, but Saint Dom, as St. Thomas wrote after this, all that I've written is straw compared to what I've seen. And he just said, I can't write any more about this. And he stopped. And so for St. Thomas Aquinas to understand that there was so much, the greatest, here's the greatest doctor of the church, right? The greatest theological mind ever in the world, my brother St. Thomas. And he says, I can't write anymore because I've seen that it's so much greater than what I've even said. So I think that we have to keep that perspective always. Study hard, which we Dominicans do, but realize we're doing this with infidelity to the truth. We're purified by obedience to the truth. So we do this on our knees, knowing that the Lord has revealed this stuff to us, and we do it always in obedience to that truth that everything is beyond us is so incomprehensible in a certain sense. So then you're back to wonder. You're back to wonder. <laughs> I was Who's gonna ask to you where beauty comes in. That's a big, that's a whole nother lecture I can give you at some point. Yeah, the, the, whole, the whole beauty things. If you ever have me back, I can definitely do that. The beauty and evangelization. Yes. Uh, I've been, uh, so some of my family is uh, mostly Polish Catholic and then yep. the other uh, half of my family, they're Protestants. Yes. Uh, or I guess half, kind of a small, <coughs> small minority. I've always wondered, uh, they don't believe in purgatory in the in the way that we do. Sure. Uh, after death, yeah. uh, towards salvation, it's a step towards salvation for the purification of sin. What is the uh, justification for purgatory uh, to explain to Protestants? Uh, yeah, it's really old. Um, the way that I, there are a couple of ways you can go about this. One of the ways I often do is I start talking about C.S. Lewis and his book, The Great Divorce. C.S. Lewis never used the word purgatory, but he talked about this after somebody died, like a purification, like they're already saved, but they, they're still not ready to be a saint. For me, it's a very pastoral doctrine, because if you, if you die and you're, you're already, you believe in Christ, yes, you're, you want to go to heaven, you're saved, but you're not quite ready to be a saint. You still need some purification. That's where you can get it. So C.S. Lewis has this beautiful image of someone learning to walk on cut grass with bare feet, and at first it hurts, because it's just been cut, but then after a while you get used to it. You get used to what it is, and that's kind of how he starts to talk about it. So that's one of the ways I often enter into it. Catholic Answers has a lot of stuff on that that can also help you into that. If you just Google Catholic Answers Purgatory, you can get a lot of stuff that comes up about that. I didn't think he was Catholic. He's not. Okay. That's why I said he's a good entrance point. Yeah, I've often quoted him. So my, my dad's side of the family are Episcopalians. Okay. And so when, uh, when I, and I, but they all get Catholic funerals because I'm the priest in the family. So <laughs> they, get, they get liturgy of the word, right? So they don't get, I celebrate Requiem Mass for them beforehand. And then when I come to the funeral home, it's, it's, it's just the Catholic liturgy of the word. But when I talk about purgatory, I don't say the word purgatory, I, but I quote C.S. Lewis all the time, and I think it's great. Sure, sure, sure. 
I can leave my email here too. So social media is a good thing too, but also my email, F-R-J-A-M-E-S-O-P at opwest.org. Okay, any other questions before we're, we're over time, but it seems like people are excited to ask a few questions, which I'm glad about. Yes. Do you, you have any G.K. Uh, Chesterton quotes that to back up uh, what he just said with C.S. Lewis? Okay, here's the, my problem with G.K. Chesterton. I don't know Chesterton very well. I'm sorry, I'm a bad Dominican. I, I, I try to read Orthodoxy. I try to read G.K. Chesterton. I love his story. I love what he's doing. I love the way he debates people. I just, I'm not that good with language and I can't get into it. So that's, I've had a hard time always. So I don't have any quotes. But, but a lot of people use G.K. Chesterton for sure. One person I often use is Cardinal Newman. Cardinal Newman, if you read his, especially his sermons, a lot of people go to his Apologia, which is his reason for becoming a Catholic. But if you go to his sermons, they have a lot of good stuff in it. And his sermons as an Anglican have a lot of good stuff in it, too. Other questions? Yes? Um, a lot of scientists like to observe and see the things around them and to be able to come up with reasonable answers to things. Yes. So how can one see God without seeing him and come to know his existence and feel him in the world around us without tangibly sensing. So I think before we started, I mentioned that we have a lot of Dominicans, the vast majority of our, we're getting a lot of vocations, both men and women, by the way. You know the women, the Dominican sisters of St. Cecilia over here in Nashville? Smart girls, right? Really, really smart sisters. And our sisters up in Ann Arbor, too, are growing by leaps and bounds. The majority of vocations we're getting, if they come to a Catholic school, they, they major in philosophy or theology usually. If they go to a state school, I don't know if we've gotten ahead of a Protestant school yet. That's an interesting question. But if they go to a state school, they usually major in the sciences. Because I think it's one of the few places you can still talk about truth in a secular setting. right? So you can actually talk about truth in biology. You can talk about truth in physics. You can talk about truth in chemistry. And so it actually is a good philosophical point to jump on to talk about faith. What I would emphasize though with a scientist is like for a biologist, you can say how the things work together. And you can say even why this happens to that, but not the why from the big picture. Like why is that even there in the first place? Why was that actually created that way? Well, because you say natural selection. Okay, natural selection, but why, why, why was that even put into the situation? Why? I mean, the, this, the why is answered by philosophy and answered by theology, not by hard science. So that's one of the things I go, you start, and it goes back to the sense of wonder. You look, at, you look at beauty. One of my best friends, he's a doctorate in physics from Stanford, uh, sorry, doctorate in chemistry from Stanford. And right after we were ordained, walked up to, um, we hiked up in Yosemite Valley and looked over Yosemite, and we prayed midday prayer together, and he said, how can somebody not believe in God? He said, just look at this. Look at this beauty. Look at this, look at this order to creation. Look at all those little things put in. How come those little cells from the micro cells up to the biggest thing in the world how does that all exist? How can you not believe in God? Yes. I just had another question about, uh, say, for instance, uh, I know even at this Protestant university, at different private universities that are faith-based, you're seeing a growing number of secular individuals who believe in nothing at all. Sure. Paganism, sure. something along those lines. Uh, what would be the best way, uh, from your perspective, uh, given that you've studied for years on this, to Toward, maybe not to be a Catholic or to even be a Protestant or to even be a Christian, but like away from like that. So one of the things, there are a couple of ways you can do it. Uh, one is um, you can read, I, I love to read articles, uh, biographies of former atheists. 
I have a friend, Leah Labresco, who, she's now Leah Sargent. She, she developed this blog to pr disprove Christianity, and she had to change it at some time when she became a Catholic. <laughs> because she was like, just trying to disprove, 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 and finally she was like, well this, and she realized there's an intelligence, that intelligence must love me back. I'm a Catholic, okay. <laughs> and so what, what I often do is I often look at what atheists go through. Like, so read their stories. Like, how do they come to believe? I think that's an important thing to go in their door and understand what they are. This very Ignatian of me, I know that. Don't, don't tell my Dominican brothers. It's very St. Ignatius. You go in their door, understand what they're saying, and come out as a Catholic. Another way you can do this is by just speaking the message of hope and goodness. Um, when people encounter a Christian, we should be different than the world. We shouldn't be obnoxious about it. I, I talk about the double O's, the obnoxiously orthodox. You know, it's like, who'd want to join that group? That's just a mean, condemning person. But to, and, and then to have people realize this is a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints, right? And so especially for people who don't believe in anything, to say, come on in, experience the beauty, experience the joy. I hate to say this, most atheists that I meet are not happy people when I start poking around. By the way, paganism is not cool. Paganism is not cool. I hear confessions of people who mess around with paganism. It is not cool. It often involves demonic stuff. It, not always, but it, it often does. That is not cool. So I often will point out for paganism, oh, really, that happy-go-lucky stuff you're doing? Yeah, um, look at the history of that. Not always real good, even though I love these pagan philosophers. Sorry. <laughs> kind of strong on that. It's, it's from the confessionals, hearing confessionals, hair-raising stories of people messing around with stuff. All right, well, thank you very much. Should we uh, maybe pray and then we can do some, some... okay, excellent. Let's... Just, I wanted to give you a quick round of Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of this day. We ask you to bless all the students and faculty of Campbell University. Bless those involved in campus ministry. Bless our brothers and sisters here in the Divinity School. Bless all of us. Help us to be happy and holy. And above all, Lord, help us to become great saints because apart from that, in the end, nothing else much really matters.